there's some mornings where I'm so overwhelmed. I don't know if I can get out of bed. I don't know if I can do it again another day because they need so much. And I have this little teeny tiny little toolbox to help them with. And we beg for more tools. And they're like, here's another ELL training. Don't sleep with the students. Here's another video you have to watch about that. And I'm like, I'm not like, we need right. help. This is Carrie Kaufman, and you are listening to the Nevada Voice Podcast. That was Alexis Salt, a teacher at Indian Springs K-12, talking about secondary trauma experienced by teachers. Alexis has been in CCSD for 14 years and has taught at a few schools, including Jim Bridger Middle School. She currently teaches 8th and 9th AP English at Indian Springs. Tanya Scroggin came from L.A. and has taught at Variety Behavioral School and currently Coronado, two very different schools in our district. Tanya also worked in schools in L.A. that were devastated by gang violence. The three of us sat down to have a discussion. It was mesmerizing, and two hours went by before we knew it. I edited it down to one, a little less than one, with breaks. Fair warning, though. This discussion is not for the faint of heart. Come to think of it, neither is teaching. Not having a toolkit. Yes. You know, we're, we're talking about secondary trauma. And we know that if you are a first responder and you go to this horrific car crash or you walk into a school in which somebody, there's been a shooter, that you, you get trauma from that. Mm-hmm. But we don't think about the everyday trauma that teachers have to deal with uh, because they are dealing with kids who have autism or behavior problems. They are dealing with kids who are growing up in poverty, who don't necessarily have parents in the home because their parents are working two and three jobs. Uh, they They are dealing with kids who, because of all of the things coming down in society, are are suicidal, have mental health issues. They're dealing with kids who are afraid that when they go home after school, their parents uh, aren't going to be there anymore because they're going to be deported. There are all sorts of stressors that are put on our kids, and I want to talk about how you guys deal with that secondary trauma that comes from those stressors. First, I, I want to contribute my personal opinion on this. It's interesting to me, I've taught in... Title I schools, where the students primarily come from projects, and now I'm at a school where the students come from really great homes with six-figure incomes. The time the parents spend in the homes, if you take the impoverished family and the highly successful family, the parents are absent almost the exact same amount. So you're going to see a lot of the problems in Title I schools, in these highly privileged schools, the exact same things. So I think there are more strands that bind than separate. And yes, we're going to be looking at students who are afraid that their family structure is going to be ripped apart because of immigration. You've also got families who are about to be ripped apart because their general manager dad has taken a position overseas. So they are now leaving the comfort of home and off someplace else. The stability that we saw in our generations growing up in the 70s 
or 60s, I'm dating myself. <laughs> that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. yeah. And we can't apply how it looked when someone stood before us and we sat in those hardwood chairs. That, that world's gone. Working at a K-12 school has been eye-opening because you can see how the problem progresses. You can see the, the brother in kindergarten who's getting in trouble for hitting, and you can see the brother in third grade who now that kid hitting has turned into name-calling and hitting. You can see the sister in sixth grade who gets into fist fights and, you know, like yells and throws things at teachers, and you can see, the, you know, the siblings in high school who cut class and, and do terrible things and the older siblings who are out now who just exist. Mm. And it's like, it's, it's super eye-opening to be able to see that from K-12. What does it do to you to look at that kindergartner or that third grader and see the future in his or her siblings and, and not be able to do anything about it? I cry a lot. I'm not going to lie. I have a 45-minute drive home, and some days I just cry. Um, you try. You do the best you can for them because education is the only thing that's going to get them out. But you can't force anybody to do anything. So, you know, you, you do your best. You try. You try to tell them they're worth something. You know, you love them, and for some of them that's enough. And then for some of them... It is terribly heartbreaking that I have a couple of kids this year who I look at and I think, barring some sort of miracle, right, like a lottery win, you know. Even a lottery win is not going to help. Money doesn't. That's just going to change not, their No, but I mean, code. I'm just talking like, like, like even the medical issues. Like, <clears throat> at least with money, we could get to the doctor, right, or to the dentist. It, it looks pretty bleak. And so you try the best you can. You you. You know, we have a lot of military recruiters that come out to our school, and I always have conflicting feelings about that because, yes, it will get them out. Yes, it will help, but is that? Military recruiters didn't come to my high school. Let's put it that way, okay? Mm. It, they, and if they did, it was to talk about going to college, doing ROTC, to go in as an officer. Your high school in Gross Point, yes, Michigan. Yes, it was never, it was never um, you know, hey, kids, come join the military to get out of the devastating poverty you live in. And I feel like some of our kids. But then at the same time, that is favorable to the lives some of them are leading right now. I mean, so, you know, that's, I've always had conflicting feelings about that. Like, yes, it's going to get them out. It's going to give them a purpose. It's going to give them a job. It's going to give them training. It's going to give them health care. But at what cost, right? Like, you, whenever you join the military, that is a risk. You could go to war, and not everybody returns from war, and that makes me sad too. So it's, it's a... It's a weird feeling. It's a, it's a weird feeling of powerlessness when you really look at a kid and you think, like, I want to take you home with me and put you in, my, in your bedroom and say, dinner's at six, do your homework, be a kid. And you can't. Tanya, when we were walking in, you talked about the one, per, the one student who is getting her master's. Right? Absolutely. Oh, my I think when I signed my very first contract in 1996, I thought, if, if I can just save one. And 
It took 23 years. Somebody reached out to me who was in my very, my very first class, and she's made it from the projects to UC Davis, and she's going to be getting a master's in city and urban planning. And I did it. I saved one. Oh, I love and talk about reward. That's better than that puny paycheck, <laughs> by all means. And it's encouraging, I think, for teachers to know that we do have the opportunity to touch a student's life. I, I got such a rush from being in an impoverished school. This is probably, working at Coronado is probably the second time in my life where I don't really have to worry about, are they fed? Have, are they properly clothed? I'm not worrying about those things. But in the past, I've worked at, in what California calls, a level 12 facility, which means it's locked. Um, the student has either committed a crime or been the victim of a certain level of abuse that led the state to take them away from their parents. So now they're in a protected environment where no one who knew them before will be able to get to them. And in that environment, like you were saying, you want to take them home. I was this close to adopting a student that I had. Um, No Child Left Behind told us we were accountable for students, but we've been way more than that for so long. In fact, just saying we're accountable reduces what we do. Yeah, absolutely. It cheapens it. Like, what we do is not just about test scores, right? It's not just about, like... Absolutely not. I could put on a Khan Academy video, right, and have somebody from a million miles away talk about To Kill a Mockingbird, right? All the same stuff. The theme doesn't change. The structure of the book doesn't change. Um, but I do know without me, there are children who would have hurt themselves that did not hurt themselves because I intervened. Tanya, you we, we talked a bit, a bit about you um, posted pictures on Facebook of bruises down your shoulder. And I you did. said... And you posted on the teacher's page. Right? I did. Um, one of the teacher's pages. And uh, you said, a student did this to me. Can you tell the story? Absolutely. Okay. Back to what's expected of us and what we provide in the classroom. This is a student that I love. I still love him. He is uh, nonverbal. And he has an issue with food. I had a new staff member that week who I was not able to properly train and not just introduce my students, but introduce their quirks, the isms, the do's and the don'ts. Mm. I left my classroom during my prep and for some reason she hung back with this student and he was allowed access to his lunch. Uh-oh, we've got a problem. This student is almost six feet tall He's 19 years old. I'm five foot two and 130 pounds. <laughs> I don't stand a chance, guys. No. So, if he has his lunch at 10 o'clock, at noon when it's lunchtime, I'm going to have the exact same situation I'm looking at right now at, at 10 o'clock. I'm standing in the way of his getting to the microwave. I'm trying to de-escalate. I'm trying to rationalize and reason 
with a student who does not have words to communicate back. So I'm doing, you know, you take that crouching position, you keep that voice low. Hey, it's not, it's not lunchtime yet. It's not time. And I reach for the microwave and he punches me. Whoa. All right. Cell phones don't work in my building. I don't know if it's the cinder blocks or what. <laughs> right. We have a lot of buildings like that. Right. So I send a student who does have words next door to the other teacher who I consider to be my, my teacher partner. And she comes running. And I'm trying to get the lunch so that he doesn't attack somebody else at lunch. And he attacks me. He grabs me by my shoulders and he headbutts me. And then he locks in on my shoulder. And I looked at it maybe three days later and I was bitten several times. I have, you know, the keen, just where it was a pinch, then where he dug in and I've got just horrific purple, green, black, bruising that just... I, I wanted to wear a sweater because going out in public, it looked like my, hers, my husband hurts me. Anyone would think that. The bruise was just. So I thought, I want healing and I'm going to go to my peers. I never posted those pictures on my personal page. I, I didn't want to call out my student. I didn't want people who love me to say, this should have happened. That should have happened. You know, get him, get him. I didn't want that. I went to my peers, and what I got was horrific. The support, it's gone, it's lacking. Teachers, other teachers told me, this is what you get, because this is what you signed on for. Clutch the pearls. No, I signed on to make a difference in the life of someone with a disability. That's what I signed on for. Um, it, it, it still chokes me up. It was pretty bad. I was reading it with horror. I think we've lost a lot of empathy in this school district, and I think that's what happens when people get kind of beaten down, right? And they don't feel like they can make a difference with anybody who matters and I don't mean matters I mean like matters like in terms of they can actually m make policy right exactly and so th they get so beaten down they get so like oh my goodness there's nothing I can do so they start victim blaming and it's wow. it's insane it the, the, the idea that somebody would say well you signed on for this right and and it's usually the people who the second any one of their students shows any disrespect they lose it. It's usually those people who have that kind of attitude. You know I'm right. Like, Absolutely. It's usually those people who you're like, you know, you hear them in the teacher's lounge. Well, that kid called me a bitch, so I'm going to throw him out of my room forever. And, and, you know. Punitive. Absolutely. But you know what? I don't want to be part of that toxic culture. So I told you how negative my support CCSD teacher's experience was. Now I'm going to tell you how terrific the people I work with are. People came in droves. I still don't remember who got him off me. I don't recall. But they saved me. They pulled me away. And my admin went to bat for me. 
other teachers went to bat for me. I knew I should not share with my parents why I was going to be out for a bit. I still haven't. If they don't, if they haven't heard through the rumor mill, I'm not going to confess it. But it's important to know there are places where we actually are supported. And that's one of the things I'm really, I'm proud of. CCSD, support CCSD on Facebook, not so much. Not proud. <laughs> not proud. <laughs> Is it, can we say that, be, first of all, you are kind of confessing it, right? You're, you're here on a podcast and anybody can hear it. So there's that, that so. right? Can we also say that because it's, it's Coronado and it is uh, a wealthier school, that that's partly why the culture is better? Or is that just, no, no, that's just luck. I think that's <laughs> just luck. It is a wonderful, diverse place. I'd like to see a little bit more diversity, but I don't see the separation. I don't see this group only that looks all the same. They only have lunch there, and this group is only here. We are more divided in terms of departments. So I, I think you'd see that on any campus. And I think, like, it, it's not wealth. I mean, when I worked at Bridger, right, um, under a principal who she's now one of Dr. Jara's, like, right-hand people, uh, her name's Diana Jaskolski, that's a very poor school. There were a good seven years where that was the most positive environment I have ever worked in in my life. Um, the work was hard. The kids were hard. But she did her damnedest to make sure we had what we needed. And that included support. So, like, when I had a, a student who there was some trafficking, it was from her family. It was, it was probably the hardest case I've ever had in my entire career. You know, my boss would understand, like, you know what, why don't you, she gave me a fourth period prep, and I could go walk at lunch, right, and my best friend was the learning strategist, so every day at lunch, we'd lace up our sneakers, there's a park behind us, right, just to get me out of that environment with somebody who I could talk to, right, um, so I don't think it has anything to do with money, is I think it does start with the administrators, and cultivating a staff where people can, even if you're not best friends, because we weren't all best friends, but who can respect each other and work together towards a common goal. And I think that that's something that's really lacking in a lot of administrators, um, so much so that when you see the good ones, you're like, holy cow, that's how a school should run. And they're the exception rather than the rule. I have assumed from things you have said, that your leaving Bridger was, and, and going to, to Indian Springs was a traumatic event. Yes, it was, it, well, it was the culmination of several events. It was that student who I, I talked about who, who had been trafficked, um, she, she just disappeared one day. And then out of nowhere, and, and I mean literally out of nowhere, because Bridger's an open campus. My door opened to the outside. There's a knock at my door, fourth period. I open it up. There she is. And she's four months pregnant. And dad's... And how in, old is she? This Bridger's a middle 15. school. 15. So she... Because I taught eighth grade, right? So I was the eighth grade teacher. So she, she left in her eighth grade year, never thought I'd see her again. She shows up the next year. Fourth period, knocks on my door. And I open my door, and there she's standing. And, and I was like, oh, my God. And then um, 
around that time, one of my colleagues attempted suicide. And uh, I was the person who had to help her. Um, she came to school when it didn't work because she wasn't thinking clearly. She took prescription medication. She overdosed or attempted to overdose. She came to school. Um, we had a bathroom that connected. And so I'm running her class, my class, trying to stop her from bleeding out trying to because when the pills didn't work she slid a wrist oh. uh trying to send a kid to get help they're freaking out and then um the last straw was they pulled our principal our assistant principal and our dean so we had one administrator for that school um dr jaskulski was promoted up uh, our dean at the time was promoted up she's actually now my daughter's ap i love her like i don't begrudge anybody mm -hmm. but um what went from a hard situation went to an impossible one Word got out that we didn't, we had a part-time administrator. We had an assistant principal and a substitute principal who came in like two days a week and things just started getting awful. And one day after school, I collapsed. My sixth period was leaving and I just, the horizon went sideways and I just fell. And luckily one of the kids saw me, he, the last kid out the door saw me and looked at the guy next door to me and was like, you know, Miss Hall just fell. And so he comes running in and got carried out in a stretcher and um, one of the little, I don't know the word for it, like rocks in your ears that helps keep your balance broke. And it's from those insane blood pressure spikes when you're like so stressed and so angry. And it was at, at that time that I was, I was miserable to the point where I didn't even know I was miserable. I was getting up, I was going through the motions because... I had to, and I was so stressed that, like, I don't even know if burnout covers it. I mean, that whole summer, I didn't really get out of bed. Like, I, I somehow slogged it to the end of the year, got myself another job. I had the wherewithal to do that. But I, for an entire summer, I kind of sat in my pajamas, just despondent, because, you know, all of the memories of the kids who really were getting raw deals just kept flooding back and sometimes I still think about them and, and well up and there was nothing with the district that could help there was no counseling there was no you know training on the front end but on the back end there was no counseling if you didn't teach through the recession you don't know what teaching is now so a lot of the people who are sitting in those buildings down on Sahara making decisions they're making decisions based on circumstances from when they taught. And from the, for the most part, that is before the collapse. Everything during and after, it's a completely different game. In which, in which way? Well, you're, you're, you're teaching kids who are raised by kids. So you're teaching, so a 13-year-old sitting in your class right now is more likely to have been raised by his older sibling than a parent in the home. Um, economically, you have parents working three, four, five jobs or not working at all. Mm -hmm. And substance abuse is bananas. I, I know very few children whose parents don't have any substance abuse issues whatsoever. And I'm not talking about like a beer or a joint on the weekends. I'm talking like severe, my dad drinks or my mom does drugs or whatever. Um, and there's just a nihilism in kids. Do you notice it too? The things exactly they joke about. about. 
the things they kid about. Like if you go online and look at memes, right? It's about killing themselves. It's about somebody else killing them. It's about ending it. It's about why bother? Why try? So you have this horrible mix of hedonism and nihilism and they like had a baby. And that's what these <laughs> right. kids are like. They're they're sad. And they don't know why they're sad. They they're lonely and they're reaching out and nobody is there. I I think that's absolutely what we're seeing in the what is our zip code? 89052. Every year we've I think for the last several years at Coronado we've lost a student to suicide. So suicide, like when I was younger, right? It was like a, I mean, I don't, and I don't mean to make light of this, but this was something like, like, it wasn't something that you found in like poor neighborhoods. Does that make sense? Like, like working class people, poor people didn't commit suicide. That was like an upper class thing, right? When it, when it first started happening, it was like at the Beltway schools, right? Mm-hmm. I think Woodbury was the first school in the Valley to have a, a kid commit suicide during the year. I could be wrong about that. But it was like, and it was like going to, like spreading like fire to all of these Beltway schools, the, the schools where parents had money, right? And now we're seeing it. I mean, it's everywhere. It's, it's everywhere, and they joke about it, and they make light of it, and they, they joke that they don't have a future to look forward to. So, and they look at you, and what do you say to them? It's all going to be fine? Well, I mean, I opened up the my news feed the other day to that, all those scientists saying that untold human misery and suffering if we don't change course on, you know, climate. climate. And I think I'm a 40-year-old woman. I understand hyperbole. I understand the need to grab somebody's attention to get them to do something, right? But if I'm 15 reading that, I think to myself, what the hell is the point? Why why get an education? Why (coughs) develop friendships that, you know, lifelong friendships and lifelong relationships? I'm going to do what I want before it all goes to hell. Nihilism. Cheery little piece, isn't it? The issues here are wide-ranging, and we'll be talking to people in the future about how to solve them. We'd also love to hear your stories of teacher burnout and leadership needs. We are looking to get together groups of teachers and support staff uh, for on background conversations about what's going on in your school. Please email stories at nevadavoice.org. You can share your story. You can set up a time to talk with me. Let's get back to my discussion with teachers Tanya Scroggin and Alexis Salt. Scroggin is a special education teacher at Coronado, but she came to Vegas from some rough schools. Salt currently teaches 8th and 9th AP English at Indian Springs K-12 school. Tanya, you started teaching in at-risk schools before this kind of nihilism uh, set in before we knew climate. I mean, we there were people who knew climate change uh, was was bad in the '90s, but but a lot of people weren't admitting it. Uh, what drew you to that, and what lessons did you learn from that? Wow, what a question! <laughs> well, for starters, my my fa- in my family on my dad's side and my mom's side. Everybody taught. When you were black in the 
40s and 50s and went to college, you could become three things. You could become a social worker, you could become a nurse, and you could teach. So all my family functions, my birthday parties were faculty meetings. <laughs> my mom had very little confidence in Los Angeles Unified School District. That's who she taught with for 35 years. So here I am. I've got my degree. I've tried a couple of things, but either there's not going to be the retirement or I'm not going to have the savings. So I find myself doing the one thing I said I wasn't going to do. Doggone it, I have signed a teaching contract <laughs> with the promise that in the next three years I will get a credential. So having always gone to elite private schools, I found the worst school in Los Angeles. A book was written about how bad that school was. And I come home with my contract and I tell my mom, this is where I'm going. I'm going to teach at this elementary. And she burst into tears. I did not want the private school experience that I'd had in Beverly Hills. I didn't want to teach kids that, well, they probably weren't going to look like me, but I didn't want to teach kids who'd already heard the message. I wanted to go someplace where what I offered was, I'm a minority. I may not, besides the alto voice, I may not sound like a minority. And I'm here to let you know that if you go to school, if you try, you can get out of here. And I taught in Title I schools. Sometimes it was a storefront that was rented out by Los Angeles County Office of Education. Sometimes it was a locked level 12 facility. Sometimes it was a community day program that was run by a church. And students would come in who had parole officers. For a while, I was like, why is everybody wearing their watch on their ankle? Because that's how naive private school makes you. So finally, I get up the nerve to ask this kid who's got green tattoos up to his chin. His tongue is pierced, and I'd never seen that before. It's, it's about year 2000. So I ask, finally, hey, well, what, what is that on your ankle? And he says, oh, miss, they said I shot this guy. And I'm thinking, oh my God, you did. Because that's not the response of an innocent person. They said I did this. But Now, it's interesting to note, this student was 19 years old. It's court mandated. He's got to come. But he doesn't have to participate. We cannot make him participate. That was my goal. I'm going to teach you something. You are going to leave here better than when I met you. And that was probably the toughest year of my career. Nine students. Nine students. I lost nine students. Wait a second. That year? That year at that community day school. Mondays, Sunday nights were hard. You, you kind of get that teaching depression that kicks in around 4 o'clock. Uh, I'll go back tomorrow. <laughs> But Monday morning is when the anxiety, when you work in a school like that, dead. who's dead? Yep. So you get there, and there's a certain uh, chime for an announcement, and you know this is going to be bad. And then you hear um, some, a poem about heaven getting another angel. You just wait for the name. And so many times it was like, man. I just told him Friday, 
my way's better. I actually had debates with a 15-year-old who was an active drug dealer. And he told me my way was the punk way. And I said, but my way, the punk way, leads to senior citizen, you know, gray hair and a cane. Your way leads to an early grave. And damn it, damn it. At the end of that year, I said, you know what? I'm not burying, I'm not burying another kid. I'm not going to another funeral. I'm not standing next to a parent and holding their hand while we look down at, at their child and say, I know you did the best you could. I'm not saying it anymore. And the hard part is there isn't the support to keep you there. The people who have the heart to give. Eventually that PTSD leads to what I used to do. I would come in from my very difficult job. I'd open the garage door. I'd close it behind me, making sure the car is off. And I'd grip the steering wheel. And I'd just hold it. And my kids would come out, mm -mm -mm, back in the house. When I can be your mom, I'm coming in. But right now I'm broken. Let me get it together. Let me make that transition from helping everybody else's kid to being able to help my own. That is so hard because you come home and you look at your kid and you don't want them to do the same stuff. And so you overparent. They look at you and like my daughter's like, I don't understand why I can't have a Snapchat. And I'm, I, I, and I can't tell her because one of my 15-year-olds met up with a 45-year-old grown man and was pressured into doing things because I don't know about you, but I'm the teacher they tell everything to. And, you know, and so my poor kid who... My child, our phrase for her is born to be mild. Like, <laughs> if we gave her Snapchat, it would probably just, she'd probably just Snapchat me, honestly. But you get so terrified. And, like, the one person I have control over is her. And so she's been, she, that poor child, has been protected from mistakes she would probably never make anyway. I wanted to bring something up, and I want to know if you experience it too. Because I... I there's also, in the background of all of this, okay, there's always that, I am always terrified that is this going to be the day that something happens on my campus or on my daughter's campus? Is this going to be the day I get the phone call? Is this going to be the, I can see what the way you're breathing, that it's like. Absolutely. And it's. This weird buildup, like, and I, and I read about it before when people deal with trauma, and I, and I can't remember where I read it, but it's a buildup and a letdown. So every morning when I get up, it's that buildup up of anxiety. And every time my phone rings at school, I get terrified. And I have told several people at CCSC, you have to stop doing parent link calls in the middle of the school day. Absolutely. Because you are going to give some poor person a stroke. Because my daughter's number comes up and my heart mm. just sinks. Absolutely. I keep my phone on my desk with Fox 5, right? Just because I'm not watching it, but I know that if something happens, there'll be a break-in, right? Like a, a news update. My school, we have old air conditioners. And when they start, they make a loud noise. You know that, like, you will see kids. And then they realize it's not anything bad. Loud noises. Uh, an unplanned fire alarm. I mean, and it's enough to give you anxiety 
for weeks. I mean, I don't know. I know what the, the toll it takes on me. And I cannot imagine the toll it takes on, say, a 12-year-old. And especially a kid whose mental health is already so tenuous because school used to be the one place they could go to get right. away from it. Right. The one place I'm safe is here. And now we can't even give them that. That is causing, like when people say, I see on Twitter and in that support, behavior is getting so much worse and it's because we're not doing discipline right, which we aren't. PBIS or um, positive behavior restorative justice should have been rolled out differently but that's not the problem the no. problem is that when kids are when people are terrified and stressed one thing that's all it takes one thing and they blow up and i for the life of me cannot understand why people don't understand that except the only thing that makes sense in my mind and i've seen this when i've talked about mental health is people who say well just go get a pedicure you're making a fuss because you want a freaking spa day. And it's like, that is not mental health. That's not even self-care, right? Wow. Right. And you're teaching kids. <laughs> and no wonder you're so frustrated with them, right? Because they're afraid. And kids, teenagers in particular, because little guys will tell you when they're afraid. Like a second grader has no pride. I'm no, afraid. No. Help me. Right. But a 16-year-old boy is not going to look at you and say... Assault, I'm afraid. Instead, no. that's going to come across as punching lockers anger. when they're upset. Absolutely. Anger. People are comfortable with anger. Especially for men. But not so much with the feeling or the emotion that, hey, I'm not okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder if a large part of this impending doom that these kids feel is that they feel like it's only a matter of time. Before somebody comes into their school yes. and shoots yeah. it up. Or their movie theater or their concert or whatever it is they happen to be doing at the time. It's only a matter of time. So why why look into the future? Why worry about 20 years from now when I can't even guarantee you I'm going to be alive 20 days from now? And we used exactly. to see that only in really rough urban areas, right? Like... Like the ones Tanya yeah. taught in. Like Where I'm talking about. there was right. gun, gang violence. Exactly. And, and, but now we're seeing it everywhere. Right? Well, and, well, look at the drills we have. Oh, Jesus. Yes. In 1971, when I was in first grade, we had a fire, fire drill. We had tornadoes because we were in Michigan. So you had, to, you had to practice for a tornado too. But but now we've got shelter in place, <sighs> active gun, gun person on the camp. What the heck? And the kids are hearing, well, gosh, this could happen to us. This could happen to us. Fire alarms. What are we going to do? When we have a fire alarm, we are supposed to stand in that room for three minutes. Exactly. And do what they call UDA. You are supposed to, and, and oh, I can't remember, it's like observe, orient, and then like you're supposed to like make a decision as exactly. to if this fire alarm was pulled because there was a real fire or if, or if a, a school shooter. shooter is trying to get everybody to come out. So you sit with kids for three minutes and the, this alarm is like, it's meant to get you the hell out of the building. Like it's supposed to be shrill and awful. And you stand there and the kids are like, why are we waiting? And I have to look at them and say, because we have to practice for the event that somebody may be out there trying to shoot you. Trying and they to look hurt at us. us. And they look at you like, well, uh, I mean, that's trauma. Well, imagine if you can't even communicate to your students. Oh, this I is can't just even. a drill. 
And if there's a change in an autistic student's program, oh, oh boy, yeah. come on, guys. And they're doing it to us once a month. Yep. Yep. Because they're so afraid something's going to happen. You would think maybe they'd wire the autism classrooms differently where that sound isn't going to come in. Maybe there could be a blinking light just for a teacher. But instead, all my students are listening to that ear piercing and the stimming, the rocking, the head banging. They can't stand it. One of my kids looks at me, we had a drill like that, and he just looks at me and he goes, whatever, let him shoot me. And at first I thought he was wow. kidding, right? And he was. But that's what I'm talking about with those jokes, right? Mm -hmm. The half kidding. It's, you know, he's like, I'd rather get shot in the head than sit in here and listen to this for three minutes. So if this ever happens, I'm just leaving. And I'm like, well, but you can't. And he looks at me, and this kid is like, nine, or no, he's 18, uh, he's like six feet tall and I'm thinking to myself, well, if he left, there really is nothing I could physically do to stop him. Like, no. I'm not going to fight with a kid. You know what I mean? But we are traumatizing them. Time for another break. One of the things Nevada Voice is doing is holding regular off the record group meetings around topics of social issues in schools. We've already had one on implicit bias, and we will be continuing to explore implicit and explicit bias. We also are going to be talking to teachers in groups off the record so we can find out what is actually going on in schools. Uh, this includes teacher burnout. The rules are that you walk into the room and you put your cell phone in a box and just talk. The number of participants will be limited each time so that we can have a decent discussion, but we're trying to get a sense of what people are dealing with and perhaps how it can be solved. If you're interested, connect with me through the Nevada Voice Facebook page or stories at nevadavoice.org. So let's get back to this discussion. So far, Tanya Scroggin and Alexis Salt have been talking mainly about their students, I wanted to know what they do to help themselves. You're talking about your student yeah. kids. You're not so much talking about yourselves. That's what yet, teachers do. Right. Exactly. That is what teachers do. But that's the whole point of, of, of this discussion. So okay. I'm going to bring it back to that. Okay. At the end of the day, how do you take care of yourself, Tanya? I don't. <laughs> I have the exact same answer. I do not. Well, wait, wait. I shower. Um, I try and get to bed. I try. Will I sleep through the night? No. Um, in the last year, my high blood pressure medicine has doubled. I used to take 50 milligrams, now I take 100. Um, mm -hmm. The stress is off the charts. When I see my provider, my health provider, she says, have you found something else to do yet? Wow. I'm 25 years in. It's too late now. Yeah. I thought driving 45 miles, right, to a smaller school would cut the stress, right? And it cut the workload, which does help, right? Like this weekend I have to grade essays, and it's 35 essays total, not 35, 40 times 6. So that does help. Okay. But the, the worry is intensified because you know these people so much more intimately like I can tell you the story of each and every one of my kids um I advocate advocate to that's whom? that's the least okay. of what you so do. I go to school board meetings and I yell at people 
Yes. And they don't listen to me. She does do that. That's how I met her. I do. At school board meetings yelling at people. Um, And they don't listen, but I keep yelling because that's – the kids aren't going to be okay unless the adults in the room are okay. So that is where I have have kind of – like I can do this, right? And um, I'm going to apply to be on that committee that – with uh, Brittany Miller's bill, you know, the teacher retention, they're going to choose 17 teachers. I'm going to apply and I'm, I'm going to lobby pretty hard to get myself on that. Um, yeah, advocacy is my self-care because I'm lucky enough to have a spouse who works really hard so that I don't have to work a second job. And we live very simply so that I can do this too. Like, um, everybody's always surprised when they see my house. It's, it's, it's small. We live, we live in a small house. We live, we live simply. We, uh, um, so that I can go out and do that because I'm going to keep yelling until someone listens that you're not taking care of the people you want to take care of the kids. Uh, my <clears throat> thought is that in this district, it's tremendously top down. And it's ridiculous that we think that the further away you are from the child in the classroom, the more important you are. And you see it. Wow. You look online and you see it. I mean, our superintendent, I see him in a tux more than I see. I mean, it, because I grew up in a wealthy community, so I know lots of wealthy people, if only like acquaintance-wise, like through Facebook. I see that man in a tuxedo more than I see CEOs of some companies in tuxedos. Um, I see the photo ops, Right. Um, but when it comes to like the school level, we aren't seen as very important, which oh, absolutely is insane. Not. We're like Kleenex. Yeah. It's nuts. Like it, it's bananas to me that we tell you we need professional development in dealing with kids with poverty, pregnant students, yes. students who have lost parents to immigration. You know, mm-hmm. we need training in this so that we can give good advice so that we can go home and maybe have a chance of sleeping through the night. Because I sleep through the night on Fridays. That's it. Because I refuse, like, I, I, I can't do it. I'm too worried. And at least Friday night, I know I'm not waking up to anything the next morning that I'm going to have to deal with. And so, but the rest of the, the rest of the week, it is like blind panic worry. And they aren't doing anything to help us. And we are trying piecemeal to help ourselves, but there's too many agendas, right? Too many people are using education as a vehicle for advancement. The ambition is what's killing us. Ambition of whom? Of uh, uh, anybody who thinks that they are more important than the people who are working directly with the kids in the classroom. Uh, in this district, there's a culture that if you suck up, you get a job outside the classroom. That that is the goal. The, the coach job, the strategist job, the CPD job, those are the goals. And it's insane. And we wonder why we're having bad results. Well, it's because all of the resources are going to the people who have nothing to do with children. Meanwhile, we watch tra- how many training videos? 16? If I'm being perfectly honest, most of us watch with the sound off because I've seen it. This is my 14th year in the district. Some of those videos I've seen 14 times. I could probably recite them. You know, some of us have jokes. Like some people will have parties, right, where they watch the videos together. And we are to the point where we can act them out. We've seen them so many times. Invite right? me next year. I'm, I'm coming Absolutely. to that. Absolutely. We're going to Facebook friends after this. But <laughs> I'm like, coming to that. But then, like, you see, like, okay, new teacher kickoff. Or not new teacher. I'm sorry. Admin kickoff at the Smith Center. 
right? It's all rolling out the red carpet. And it's a lot of self-congratulation hmm. for work that other people are doing. And we, they ask us what we need and we tell them and they don't listen, which it's almost like I'd rather you not ask me at all. You know, if we are going to be successful, there needs to be a fundamental change in how we see who's important to this process and who is not. Because the fact of the matter is, is that any of those people in central office could not show up for a week and nobody sitting in my classroom would know it. But if I don't show up for a week, every single one of those kids, their lives are going to be worse because I'm not there. And until we accept that and respect it and stop with this teaching is an entry-level position that we have in this district, wow. we are going to continue to, to have the issues that we have. I think if I could say one thing to Jesus Jara or any other superintendent, it is not your burnt out teachers who are quitting. And you need to understand that. Burnout, you can barely get through the day, right? Let alone type a resume and get a new career. It is your teachers who are not burnout who are leaving because they are looking at your burnout teachers and they are terrified of becoming that. Mm. And this is a big part of why I think we are in the situation we're in. There's this, this thought that, well, if the burnout teachers are leaving, isn't that almost kind of good for everybody, right? They leave, they get what they need. Fresh the kids, blood. The kids get in. fresh blood. When in reality, what you're more likely to see is long-term substitutes and then teachers who are so burnt out they can hardly get through the day. And so that needs to be a mind shift too because the people who are leaving are not the people you want to leave. The people who are leaving are the people who still have life in them who don't want this to be their fate. We have been talking to Tanya Scroggin and Alexis Salt, two teachers at CCSD who have been sharing their view of the issues that concern this district and teaching in general. If you would like to talk about this story or tell us your story about teacher burnout, go to our Facebook page, Carrie Kaufman, Nevada Voice, or you can email me at stories at nevadavoice.org and I will reach out to you. Thank you to Alexis and Tanya for sharing their stories. We have a town hall coming up in about a month and a half. We'll hear more about that soon. Thank you for participating in Nevada Voice. I'm Carrie Kaufman.